Gyro Nation Metal. Welcome back, everyone. This is Jeff with Gyro Nation Metal. Germany's Thalkandra is gearing up to release their fifth full-length album, Hail the Abyss, on May 19th, 2023. The melodic black death metal band was originally formed in 2003 and unfortunately entered a hiatus from about 2005 until 2008 when founding member Stefan Kumera decided to revitalize the group. Stefan is also one of the founding members of Obscura, a great prog tech death band who most recently released a killer sixth album, A Valediction, in 2021. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Stefan about some of his adventures in and out of metal. Stefan, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thank you very much for the introduction of Tulkandra. I know we haven't been very present in Canada during the last 20 years of our existence, but uh, it's a pleasure talking to you today. Well, and as we chatted just before the show here, you guys are planning a tour here in 2024 and are aiming to hit Canada once again. Yeah, that is true. We just introduced Tulkandra for the very first time to the North American audience as support of both um, Flesh God Apocalypse from Italy and Germany's Obscura, as well as Wolf Heart from Finland through a whole North American tour. We played Canada. Unfortunately, we didn't make it to Alberta, but we want to work on a tour for early 2024 to play our first headlining run over there. And of course, we try to make it happen this time to play Calgary, Edmonton, and Vancouver. At least those three cities we try uh, to cover since we didn't we didn't play there on our, our recent tour. All in all, the band has been received very well in North America, and we hope uh, those shows are going to be a success and people will show up. Regardless of where you guys go, I think you're going to have an awesome reception. We love it. We love it to play over there. And uh, the recent tour just proved that there are so many people who really like this kind of music, not especially our band. But I think this entire genre of melodic black death metal that has been, I wouldn't say hyped, but it had, uh, it had a certain output of very, very valuable, great records in the mid-90s. This is something that somehow comes back these days. There are more bands um, aside us playing a similar style of music that, well, gain a certain recognition in the, during the last days or the last years. And this is something we, uh, we are really cheering on and, well, try to, to give our part too, as well. As you guys are planning a tour, do you often look at where a certain style of music is popular or how do you kind of work that out? It's hard to say. Of course, you ha if you plan a tour where you obviously have to invest a lot of money, effort and time, you want to do it right. And of course you do your research. North America absolutely makes sense. The only problem that holds us off all the 20 years are the the, unfort uh, the unfortunately very high prices for working visas. It's something between 15 and 20,000 Canadian dollars you have to pay right now. And if you, if you play in any band that plays extreme metal, you know the economics and how this affects a yes or no to play a certain market. And North America would have been really, really interesting also the, the last 20 years, but we simply couldn't afford it at all. Nowadays, there are some programs from uh, several European governments that uh, support musicians or bands that also has to do with uh, this pandemic, the issue and uh, to try to restart the entire culture and, and fund projects that haven't been funded uh, in the past. So that makes it a little bit easier. So we've been very, very lucky to make it happen at all. And since we made it once, we want to come back. We have valid working visas. We simply want to come back and play a full show this time. I'm surprised that working visas are so expensive in Canada. I've heard some issues with uh, working visas in the States, like you kind of have to select exactly when you're going to be there. With the Canadian working visa, like you said, it's 15 to 20 grand. Does that give you a, a reasonable length of time or do you have to tell them exactly when you're going to be in the country? Oh, uh, pardon me. I was referring to the United States, not Canada. Oh, okay. 
I wasn't clear about that. And sorry for for Canada, at least for European bands, it's uh, it's easy to come over. Of course, you have to do your paperwork and you have to be on top of everything, but it's not affecting us at all in this particular uh, manner. So if in case uh, we want to do uh, only Canadian tour, we can do that uh, within a heartbeat. For the US, it's way way more uh, a hassle. But I hear it's also for Canadian bands a big problem to uh, come over to the US in recent years. So it's not exactly the same procedure, but similar and also a lot of headache. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I'm a, obviously a resident and a citizen of the country and even coming back, I've had issues with our CBSA, which is frustrating to say the least, but I've had less trouble getting back into the States than I have coming back. Well, it always depends on the person you're talking to, but uh, in general, it helps if you're just friendly and uh, prepare all your, your papers or passports and don't act like a dick. <laughs> That's, that, totally. that is the basis of behaving properly. I've also noticed that different ports, not ports, but like ports of entry, depending on the traffic, depending on the kind of issues they have there, their personality of the, the officers are completely different too. Like some are super laid back, pretty much just let you through and some grill you with questions for like 20 minutes. I mean, that can happen on any airport in this planet. So the people are just humans. It doesn't matter if they, if they wear a uniform or not. So yeah, exactly. Before we continue, I've got to give a shout out to Natalie Camillo of Napalm Records. Thank you so much for helping me set up this episode. You guys are getting ready to unleash another beast upon the world here. So as this episode is being recorded, you have just over two weeks now until Hail the Abyss is released. So what are, if any, what are some of the last minute preparations you have to make? As we speak right now, uh, we are preparing our release show. On the day of the release, on 19th of May, we are going to play the entire record uh, in, at our hometown in Lanzo, Germany. That's uh, not too far from Munich, from the Metropole. And we make, obviously, a big party and... We prepare a couple of surprises for all the friends and uh, the fans who are going to attend our hometown show. So this is something that consumes most of our time right now. And aside, well, rehearsing and preparing the show, we are working on another tour. We are working on a couple of videos and clips, live clips or uh, recordings, live recordings we did on the last on the last North American tour. So the entire year is piled up with work for the band. And the release is just the next step, the next big chapter for us. And we are all looking forward because not only the band, but also Napalm Records, they put a lot of a lot of effort into this release. They came up with the idea of uh, preparing a box set, like a full box set with a lot of limited vinyl, uh, extra seven inch vinyl. For the very first time, we, uh, we have been able to release Appleture of the band. That's something people ask for a very, very long time. And of course, Bukanda is an underground band, hands down. And to come up with something like this definitely shows that a record label puts a lot of hope and support into your band. And this is something we are very, very grateful for. It's not only the release show and the bands, but it's also the the label and all the people behind the band that makes this, this a success and also a special release. It's really good to hear that one of the bigger labels is taking that kind of personal approach to you guys and putting a lot of effort into it. I find that with some of the bigger labels, a lot of bands just kind of fall through the cracks. But from what you've just said, it doesn't seem like that's happening to you guys. Well, it's a matter of attitude. You work with a record label. For me personally, a bigger record label doesn't mean that they do all the work for you. It means you have more options. You have the, the possibility to reach a wider audience because simply the label or the, the company is way bigger, but it also means that you have to work even more. If you want to do that, that's cool. Then there are people that will welcome you with open arms if you if you bring ideas to the table, if you if you work with the label, not against them, and just wait until somebody is well 
preparing everything for you because this is not going to happen. There is not that one person that uh, basically is uh, the, the personal manager of the band within a record label. There are a thousand other artists who expect the same. So it's always a back and forth. You always have to bring in something on your own. And then it doesn't matter if you're working with a, a very big label, a small label, or one, one of the many other big names you, you hear out there. It's always a matter of what you bring from your own end, and then a record label or the, the A&R can respond. This is something I realized during the last 10 years, probably, and that makes it easier to work with, uh, with a record label. So you think that from your side of things, the more engagement that you guys bring to the table, the more engagement that the uh, record label would have, regardless of size or which label you're going with? I think so. I think so. The, the more, as you say, engagement you bring on all levels, the more uh, reliable you work with a record label. You don't reach the golden rule of uh, deli delaying anything. Um, you have to honor all the deadlines because there's much more than uh, a pushed release date uh, on those deadlines. There are all the, the manufacturers of vinyl, of CDs, of T-shirts, of just the physical products, but also the, the digital part of it. If you understand this, and if you just talk to the people you're working with openly, even if shit happens, there's always a solution to, to solve it, then also the record label trusts more in you. And regarding to Kandra, we're working with uh, Napalm Records since, I think, 2008, when they signed us. We have five records out, and as you as you've figured, we are not the biggest band on the label, not at all, by far. But we are a band that is growing, and we're growing steady. At each record um, has has been throwing out more and more uh, records, so the band is constantly growing, and uh, we have a loyal fan base. And this is something you can rely on as a record label. If there's an active band that tries to tour, that tries to make the best release. Not only the, the music, but also the artwork, the layouts, everything. We put a lot of effort into every single detail of those albums. Then people simply pick up that. And even if they don't love your band, they respect you. And this is sometimes worth of a lot, a lot, in my opinion. I mean, that's my, my opinion on, on this entire scene and how, how you can make a band survive these days. As I was listening to some of your previous interviews and, and reading some of the previous interviews as well, it seems like you take that approach with both Volkendra and Obscura. Like you are invested at every level. And like you mentioned earlier, that it's going to be a busy year for uh, for you. But I think that's like perpetual. <laughs> you, you continue to put more and more into your music. You continue to grow in every way. And that's incredible. And I think that that's reflected well in the way that Napalm treats you and the, and the way your bands are growing. Yeah, yes, <laughs> somehow, somehow that worked off. I mean, there's, there's not a blue pause for how, how to make things happen. This is just the, the attitude I'm working with, with both bands. And I also focused always on those two bands. In my life, I founded two bands. It was Obscura when I was 16 in 2002, and Tulkandra a year later when I was 17 or almost 18 in 2003. And I only focused on those two bands. I never spent any time in, in other projects except a short stunt in, in Death to All. But it was only a life thing, but we, we never worked on any records or something. All those 20 years or 21 years, I focused on those two bands and I tried to invest as much as time and also money, of course, into both projects to, to make them not successful, but simply to make it work in a, in a certain way. And that also paid off in return that I'm making, I'm making a life out of music since a couple of years. I'm only focusing on music. And, that in return gives me a little bit more freedom to focus on even more details. For example, 
we have been able to focus on video production. This is something I really love, but it, it's so time consuming. Even for Tulkandra, we released a couple of really quality and, and valuable music videos with uh, Grupa 13. That's a production company from Poland who also worked with, I think, Powerwolf with creator, all the big names from Amon Amoth and Behemoth, a thousand more. So this is something we are simply able to because there's a little bit more freedom on, on the timely manner. And uh, this all leads up to, hey, we are releasing another album after less than two years. <laughs> so there, there's always there's always a reason for things that are happening. Speaking of your upcoming album here, so you worked with Herbert Lochner again on the album cover, which to me looks awesome. One thing I've enjoyed about Thulkandra is that you guys have remained consistent with the theme of your album cover. So like cold, frozen lands with like blue as one of the main colors and the Grim Reaper. As he's appeared on all of your albums, is he considered your mascot? And if so, does he have a name and how is he represented in your, in your music? <laughs> um, we, we never put too much thought in, into the mascot. But of course, we have a certain consistent way how to present the band. That's more rooted into the way how those artworks are created. The first three records have been drawn or painted by Christian the Necrolord Wallin, a very mm -hmm. famous Sweden. And now we're working with Herbert Lochner. Same framework, so to say. You mentioned the blue color. But what is important to me is how it represents the, the band. It's not the mascot itself. Yes, that's the, the obvious thing you see on the record. It's the, the fact that it's, it's hand-drawn. It's a painting in oil. And that represents also somehow the the music we are playing. We are not polishing everything. We are, if you, if you compare the music to the visuals, we are not the Photoshop band. It's not everything on the grid. There, there are parts that are not entirely on the grid. There are sometimes, there's a certain dirt, a certain rock and roll feeling in all of the instruments, but we want to keep it. And the same happens with the, the artwork. It's hand-drawn. It's something that is not perfect. Actually, it's the imperfection that makes a certain band sounding like like they are if you if you change let's say all of the all of the guitar sound into an i don't know a, a preset of any xfx camper if you put all the drums or replace all the drums with a certain drum library you cut out all the personality of all the instruments and all the players and this is something you want to keep that's also the reason why i worked for a very long time with christian Wallin and now herbert lochner for the artworks and I would love to work also with Herbert with, uh, for the next record, for the Overnext, simply to keep the steadiness and also to keep this handmade, handcrafted value within the band. What was one of the main reasons that you sought out Herbert for the last couple, of, well, this album and the last one, instead of continuing with Christian? We talked to Christian, the Necrolord, but mm -hmm. he's, a, uh, he's a, a real artist. He doesn't give out anything he's not 100% happy with. And for a dying wish, he proposed to, to make the new artwork. And I even visited him in uh, in his atelier over here in Sweden when I was recording the, the last Obscure record in Studio Fredman. I went down to to his place, to his atelier, and we talked about music and everything for an entire day. But uh, then I also understand his attitude a little bit better. He's not making all the artworks for a certain audience. He's making the, uh, the artworks for himself. And if he thinks our, an artwork is not ready, even if it was photographed two times or three times, he finds something he want to change, he does change it. And he doesn't give a fuck if there's any deadline crossed or fucked up because of it. Because he is that perfectionist, an artwork is ready when it is ready.
And for a dying wish, it's simply collided with our deadline. So yeah, the artwork, I'm not sure if he finished it at a certain point. Uh, I haven't seen any new artworks from him. So he's bottom line, he's very, very slow, but keeps a certain perfectionism. So it didn't work out for a dying wish. So we asked Herbert Lochner, who is related to our drummer, family-wise, and uh, he simply stepped in and uh, he understood the, the band very well from the music, from the lyrics, from the entire attitude. And uh, with his, well, he's capable of uh, painting everything in oil. That's his profession. He's a professional artist since I think 40 years. He's almost 60. So very, very expertized man. And uh, he simply works a little bit faster. And this is the reason, the honest reason why we worked with, with Herbert. And since he helped us out for a dying wish, we want to keep this continuity and uh, also worked with him for the new record and we'll also continue working with him for the next one. That's awesome to hear. I think it's a double-edged sword too when you when you are a perfectionist and you have to take that time to make sure what you're putting out is perfect but then like you said it kind of runs into deadlines so on one end that's awesome that they put out or that he puts out the best he possibly could but it could also hinder him sometimes if there is a deadline approaching. Yeah that happens and I'm absolutely not mad and I don't want to throw anything under under the bus as uh as the North Americans say, um, it's just as it is. And um, we continue as a band and also Christian Wallin, he's awesome. He's a wonderful person to hang out with. I think one of the best bartenders I met in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, for the that one album artwork, it simply didn't work out. But I'm very sure when he is releasing another artwork, it will be perfect and people will love it. So we will go on and he will go on, but uh, there's nothing bad I can say about him. So I, I simply understand his attitude. This is uh, the bottom line, what I want to say. So I understand his point of view and I respect that. And that's totally understandable as well. Regarding the theme of your album covers, are they inspired by, uh, I don't know, the traditional blue uh, black metal album covers like Dissection, Emperor, Mayhem, Sacramentum and Dark Funeral? Yes, absolutely. This is where all this comes from. And um, at those times in the early and mid 90s, there was no Pro Tools or maybe it was, there was, but people didn't use it. Uh, at that extent and somehow we keep this tradition since when we started this band we wanted to make music that is related to all those albums we grew up with you mentioned uh, emperor or uh, also the section this is this is also the music we grew up with and when we started this band in 2003 this was exactly what we wanted to do no at least in, in our area and uh, within our friends uh, it felt a little bit outdated and there were no bands coming up with new music of this style. So we just said, okay, we love it. Let's let's give it a try and do it our own. And we kept it that way. And it's a certain tradition we keep simply for ourselves to go on with that musical wise, but also with the artworks. I think it also looks great too. Like there's there's obviously a benefit in changing your albums album covers around like in Obscura. They're not completely... They don't have one specific theme, at least from what I can see. Maybe there's something a little bit deeper that you have. But Thalkandra, it they have the same colors, the same styles, so it's it's more consistent over time? It's a different point of view. Obscura also has uh, thoughts about it. We worked with a certain color palette for each album, but the same artist. So we have the, the relapse years where one artist covered all of the records. And uh, then we had a cut. We moved to a new... Um, to a new record label, Nuclear Blast, 
And with that change, we also changed the artist. But with, for all the records on Nuclear Blast, we are working with that. So in Obscura, I think in several chapters, so to say, all with a certain yeah. thought behind it. But uh, it's it's simply a different different attitude. I try to separate both bands as far as possible. I did that in the past, and I try to also give the chance to grow as a band it shouldn't be seen as a side project of the guy who's also playing obscura and i want to grow this band as a i'm not sure how you if you can call it like a separate entity but it's simply a different a different life <laughs> no i think that actually explains it very well like it's apparent that you put in equal amount of effort to both bands and with the interviews that i have listened to it seems like you're promoting them both the same you're putting them out the same amount of effort and you're basically just killing it on both fronts <laughs> Thank you very much. That's a uh, very kind, very kind of you. I, I love both bands, but both bands they work completely different, entirely different. Tulkandra is a band that will never become a a regular touring band at all because it's simply not possible to make a living out of this band. It's too much in niche, and all the members, except myself at the moment, don't make a living out of music. So we want to keep Tulkandra as something special. So each tour we we commit to should be something special. It's not a band you see on every festival or on every every tour every year. And with Obscura, it's a little bit different because we are all uh, professional musicians. We all live or make a living out of this. <coughs> and with this band, we are touring, I don't know, I think 20 times as much as uh, Tulkandra and play many, many more shows. It's a different approach. From a personal point of view, I love both bands the same way. I love to play very, very demanding technical progressive music because I love the music and with Tulkandra it's exactly the same but Tulkandra live more or less in, in the same area we can rehearse regularly Obscura we don't even live on the same continent we have a bassist from the United States we have our guitarist just moved to uh, to Mexico the drummer lives in Austria and I'm living in Germany so this is a, a different setup but again both is very enjoyable I love both both people and on the recent tour we just brought both bands on the road and <laughs> it was pure joy playing this music also you have to switch between one attitude to the other within half an hour but still it was pure joy it was very very demanding on the physical end but i simply loved to play it and see if that was actually quite funny to see if the people who are living uh, loving obscura are somehow clicking into this black metal band which it is in Tulkandra, and somehow it worked so we had people that never heard anything about Obscura. They showed up because of Flesh God Apocalypse and Pulkanva and then figured, okay, there's another guy playing in the Sector's band. How did that come? <laughs> and vice versa. So it was really fun and something I would love to do again if I don't have to play two shows every night. It's pretty cool that you've taken completely separate approaches to both bands, like as far as the music style, the art style, um, how you choose your members and stuff like that. So originally... Earlier, you touched on the you started Obscura when you were 16 and then Volcandro when you were 17. So what kind of inspired you to do two separate bands with completely different musical directions? Actually, Tolkandra was rooted in Obscura in the first place. When we founded Obscura in 2002, the first release was a demo, I think, around 2003. And with this demo, you figure that it was a big melting pot of all the musical styles, styles we loved. So the four guys... They played in the first incantation of um, of Obscura. They loved black, fresh, death metal, progressive stuff, and we put everything together. And we figured, okay, this is a little bit uh, 
a little bit much or too much. So we tried to separate it a little bit. So Obscura went down the, the more demanding technical alley in the, in the upcoming years while we split with all the Obscura members into a second band called Tukandra a year later. So it was a conscious move, so to say. And basically Tukandra was, uh, was only Obscura members in the beginning. I did not know that. That's pretty cool. So for you, what were some of the elements of your music that you wanted to focus on for the new album for Thalkandra? And how has the music changed since your last release? We, we basically have been able to record the new album in a similar framework as the previous one, The Anguish. We once again worked with Dan Zwane as producer, as engineer, and in the same studios to record it. So that made it very easy with also the same, almost the same lineup. Uh, to come up with music. So what we wanted to change to the previous record was simply the diversity. I think the previous record was already already had a certain broad palette, but with the new album we tried to to extend this, this a little bit. On the Dying Wish we had a title track called A Dying Wish that was I think at the time the, the slowest song we ever wrote. It's almost it almost has some kind of a doom feeling. And on the new album we thought okay, we can do faster like most of the bands faster, wider, and more extreme. But how about we go even more slow? So all the tempies on the new album are entirely different. We wanted to write a really diverse album with all kinds of tempi, all kinds of feels, all kinds of vibes, and came up with so diverse, diverse songs. Like the the last song, the final closer, that could be a doom, a doom song. We have a Celtic Frost. Uh, related song with On the Wings of Cosmic Fire, which is uh, a banger life, pretty much. And we have those classic heavy metal elements we we put in a little bit more. So basically the whole idea writing this album was writing good music that we enjoy ourselves. So we don't want it to have songs that repeat themselves. So each song on the record is completely different than the other one, but still sounds like the band. That's, I think, the easiest way to describe the whole record with one sentence. And to be honest, I'm very happy everybody in the band put something on the table. So it's not a it's not a solo project. It's a whole a real band where both guitars write songs and the whole band then starts to arrange everything together. And this is something I get out when I listen to the the new album, like Hail the Abyss. This is completely diverse. If you start with the first song and end with the very last song, it's a pure roller coaster of vibes and feelings and me personally and I enjoyed listening to front to end, and this is something people also picked up so far. At least the feedback we hear from journalists, but also friends who get the chance to listen to the album in the first place. When you are gearing up to release a new album, do you often send it to like friends and family just to see kind of what they think before you set everything out, or is this something that you just have done recently? Um, not during the demo stadium. So when we start writing on music, we do not share anything with anyone out of the band because. A rough skeleton of a song never represents the, the final thing. And people tend to uh, think, okay, this demo track of four riffs, uh, this is the new the, this is the new song. Okay, this sucks big time. So to come the <laughs> they whip out. So we don't do that at all. But of course, if the um, if the final mastering uh, has been delivered, we show it to the close friends or family, but we don't send it around. And then, well, yeah, we have a drink together, listen to the songs, and uh, hope that people like it. 
In the past, you've featured both The Somberlin and Night's Blood, which are both dissection covers, as well as Life Demise, which is an unanimated cover. You've also featured multiple instrumental songs and either live or demo tracks. So the current track listing for Hail the Abyss has two live songs this time around, but no covers. So a couple questions here. Why do you choose to include these types of songs? And was there a reason for you skipping a cover this time around? I think the last the last uh, cover recording we did was on the second album, Life Demise. So we only had real cover recordings in the studio at the first, uh, the debut album and the second. And everything later on was, uh, I think, was a live recording from 2018. That was our 15 year anniversary show. And at that show, the, the concert featured a bassist, Christ, uh, Christian Kratzer who was supposed to play on an language, but he passed away. He had uh, an accident. He was hit by, a, I think, a truck when he was uh, driving from Germany to Italy by bike. So he, he always did like very, very long journeys with a bike. And it was normal. He also drove to Sweden from southern Germany, like one of those lo uh, long lasting uh, trips. And there he got hit and uh, all of us fell into a hole and simply to shows some kind of respect and also keeping him at least in thoughts we managed to uh, to have all of those tracks from this 15-year show mixed mastered and released uh, the video clips uh, you find them online we, we only released them online but all of those those live tracks we put at least two of them as bonus tracks on uh, the, the recent records that's more that's something we do rather for ourselves to honor the work uh, he he brought up to the band this is nothing we do for for anyone. I mean, we, we don't have those bonus tracks to sell a couple of more records. This is more something to, to honor the work of Christian and have him also on the new album in some way. So it's it's something nerdy. It's it's really something personal we do, we do here. I'm ready to hear about Christian. That's uh, that's not a good way to go at all. And like you said, it sent you guys into a deep hole, so it must have hit you like a sledgehammer, basically. How did you guys get through all that? That was during the writing process of A Dying Wish. So on this album, A Dying Wish, we have a couple of uh, acoustic instrumentals. But those uh, acoustic instrumentals, they they are not recorded on the best circumstances. But these have been basically the, the demo recordings this year did uh, before he passed. And we asked Dan Swane to somehow rescue those, uh, those demo tracks. And he, with all of his experience and... Uh, his studio magic, he somehow enhanced the sound that well that those acoustic demo tracks sound presentable to an album recording. So we kept him on the record. But when we wrote this entire thing and he passed away, it took, I don't know how many weeks or months to, to somehow restart. We didn't expect it. I mean, you never expect if, if somebody is passing away, obviously. But uh, this was quite a, a personal loss. And one day to another, we started exactly the opposite. It's, uh, first of all, it hindered us to simply start writing songs. We, we didn't know where to start and there were no ideas. We felt a little bit blocked. But from one day to the other, it simply started like a big piece, like a bottle of ketchup. First there's nothing and then <clears throat> you have everything at once. Somehow this affected also the, the vibe of the album, A Dying Wish. And the whole record, also the lyrics, are related to losing a, a, a good friend. So it was not, not an easy task, to be honest, to, to finish this record. Was the song A Dying Wish uh, influenced by Christian's death? No, it was directly in, uh, influenced. 
that's also the lyrics and uh, the vocal performance and all that. Uh, you also had to deal with the unfortunate hiatus due to the suicide of Jürgen. I believe his name is Jürgen Zintz. Did I say that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. It's uh, more years ago, I think 2005. It was a very, very unfortunate character back then. I mean, we've been all teenagers at the time. Mm -hmm. But uh, he was on a on a very very bad journey, and uh, th there's actually a quite long story about it. But uh, I I'll keep that for whenever I'm I'm old enough to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I had to kick him out of the band when he was starting taking heroin, because this is this was simply a, a line I didn't want to cross at all. So I kicked him out of the band. Uh, because I didn't want to deal with that. If you if you smoke weed, if you do, I don't know, mushrooms, this is something I can tolerate to a certain level. But uh, at that point, I just saw, okay, this, this is a dead end. I, I don't want to deal with that or I don't want to deal with people doing it. And also his uh, constitution went downhill week by week entirely. And uh, when I hear that he uh, uh, committed suicide, he uh, he was jumping in front of a, of a train. Jesus. Yeah, uh, it's not fun, and uh, it it was a weird feeling. I mean, I've been a teenager at the time, and I didn't know if I should be happy that he finally he finally uh, pulled the plug, or if if it's sad that uh, that a friend, uh, somebody who was a good friend at a certain time, uh, is not there anymore. So that was really bittersweet, and I think about it every every now and then. Not every day, to be honest, but. Uh, if I listen to old tracks or somehow sometimes you stumble across old stories, then you think about it. So yeah, weird, weird story. I mean, it's history, it's old ancient history, but still it's part of the band. I've unfortunately lost friends to suicide as well. And it's one of those things that you can't quite get rid of in your mind. Like every so often I'll think about either the memories or the people themselves. And it's like, it is kind of a double-edged sword, like you said. You don't know whether you should be happy that they've finally found peace because the path they were on was absolutely brutal, or you should be sad because of their passing. And I think, like, for me, at least, it, it's been both, unfortunately. Like, I've been sad, but I've also been like, okay, well, I couldn't have been there all the time for this person, and I've beat myself up over it many times, but I have to realize that it was a decision that they were going to make regardless, unless they find their own way out of the hole. You cannot change anything of that. That's the point. This is uh, something you're not really related to. And uh, the only thing that maybe helps is uh, keeping the good, the good memories. Not only thinking about the bad memories, if, uh, and I mean, I don't know your cases, but in, in mine, I'm, I'm very confident about the situation. I try not to overthink the negative parts, but rather think about what, what have been the good times, what memories you keep in mind from the, the golden days, so to say, when you made, in this case, ma made music together or hang out together. Um, memories like this, I, I try to honor them and not to overthink uh, the negative part, simply to, to keep a positive picture in your mind about those people that are not there anymore. And the older we get, the older you get, the older I get, that won't be the last people you're missing. Uh, I always have to think about my, my grandfather who I think he he became older than 90 years. And from his whole generation, he was the last one. In the last seven, eight years, there was no one he could talk to because everybody, even those people have been very old, they've been a, uh, a generation younger than him. So he was the very, very last one. <laughs> so that's also quite sad.
but it will happen. I mean, except um, I'm sleeping on a banana tomorrow in the studio and die while trying to mix an album. <laughs> you never know. It must have been a really difficult decision to kick Jurgen out of the band because you noticed that he was starting to struggle with addiction and you have to walk a fine line between support and trying to help your friends out. But at the same time, you have to look out for your own interests and make sure that what you're trying to either accomplish or put out is up to your standards. So how did you balance that kind of inner dialogue for yourself? To be honest, I was a teenager at the time. I really didn't know what is right or wrong. This is just part of life experience. And I didn't talk about anyone uh, about kicking him out. This was some, just something I decided for myself. I do not want to have to deal with anything that has to do with those hard drugs. This is something I'm not standing. And uh, looking back, that was a very strong decision for a kid in that, uh, in that age. And thinking about it now, I think I would do exactly the same. I'm 37 years old now. I think if I would figure one of my bandmates is struggling with something like that, I, I wouldn't work with this person anymore. Not at all. It's been my experience that with people struggling through addiction, it's you have to remove them from certain elements of your life. But at the same time, it's really helpful when you when you still, say, provide resources or at least try to encourage them to make better choices. It doesn't always work, but you do the best you can, right? Looking back, probably. I mean, you you never know. If you if you overthink every situation in your life, uh, you're living in the past. So there's there's a certain way to. Um, think about your experiences and uh well el elaborate if if this was a good or bad decision but not if it would have changed the entire life so it's a matter of life experience and uh, there will probably another thousand decisions you do in your life if you can look into the mirror and uh, look into your own eyes and say okay i would do this exactly like this because i did it like that then I think it's okay. You have to simply be straight about all decisions you do. That's not easy, and sometimes you do mistakes, obviously, but mm -hmm. it's a matter of life. Do you have any advice for other people facing similar losses, either naturally or because of other causes like suicide? I'm not sure. I'm not in the position to to um, to act like uh, knowing everything of anyone. Each person and each situation is entirely different, but. I wish less people would have to deal with that, but that's, uh, well, an honorable wish, but it won't happen. So that won't change anything. Many of the guests that I've had on the podcast before have spoken about the creation of music being sort of a therapy for them, allowing them to overcome adversity, loss, and contributing positively to their mental health. As a fan, music for me is one of those things that keeps me grounded and allows me to process much of the stress in my life. So for you, how is music tied to your mental wellness? And are there times that you turn to listening rather than creating? That comes and goes in waves. I love working in the studio, um, creating music, writing music, but also just traveling around the world and delivering a live performance where you don't overthink everything afterwards. And both can be fun with the right people. Both can turn into a fucking nightmare. And music can bite you in the ass, but also help you to simply enjoy life with good friends. So it's a two-sided sword. And it always depends on what kind of people you have you around with you. I played tours that have been extremely successful, but I hated every fucking day because we get got treated like uh, like trash. 
I played tours that have been economically a big disaster, but it was so much fun and uh, such a good experience with uh, all the people around that I would do it immediately again. And the same goes for studio sessions and writing sessions. Some, like we just talked about uh, a dying wish. This was really a hard nut to, to finish this album. And I'm glad we, we did it. Other musical experiences, writing or creating um, songs like Hail the Abyss, that, that was pure joy from front to end with everybody involved. I had studio sessions that have been a fucking nightmare because uh, of, of people being around or being not around or don't deliver and something like that. So that's the cool thing about music. You never know what is going to happen. You always have a certain attitude and you always head towards a certain, a certain path and hope for the best. <laughs> and then it's a disaster. And sometimes you think, okay, I don't have any ideas. Uh, I don't know where to go with uh, this and that song or this idea. And then it basically writes itself. That's the cool thing. You expect the unexpected, as some people say. And this is something uh, in our controlled world where basically from birth to death, uh, your entire way sometimes feel like uh, it's already written on paper. <laughs> this changes sometimes everything. And listening or creating music is something I love and hate at the same time. You mentioned that people treated you like shit and that how exactly did they treat you badly? Mm. Well, we had certain people, it's not the band, but certain people within the production that uh, really treated us like, like shit. Um, we had one tour with Children of Bodom, Devin Townsend in 2011. And while the band was actually nice, I mean, they, I, I had the impression they didn't care about any of the support bands. The crew treated us like shit. They, that was one of the worst experience we faced as a band in more than 20 years. And the, the tour was attended so well. It was a, on paper a really good package, but the vibe was so miserable from day one until the last day. And also on a European tour with Cannibal Corpse, we had a tour manager who treated us like shit, like for no reason. He really treated us like animals you, you want to shoot. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. But we are friends with the band, and so we could solve that. But I take the positive out of the negative, and I do not want to have any of the bands that are touring with us being threatened or threatened in this way at all, ever, ever. If it's the first support band that does their very first show or tour or somewhere, I want to have them treated fairly and uh, with a certain respect. It doesn't matter if you like the music or not, but uh, all of those people rehearse, all of those people went through, I don't know how many months to record music and uh, make shows happen. And then you have to treat them with a certain respect. And this is something I take out of all of those negative experiences we had. I'm very happy we, we only had a few of those. I don't want to paint the wall black. Most of the tours are cool. They are nice people. But especially those two tours, I I, I see every, every time uh, I think about how shitty something can be. And uh, I take this as a reference. Shit happens, but uh, we're looking forward, not backward. That's definitely a good way of looking at it. And obviously taking the positive out of the negative experiences is it makes it a little so much easier to move forward. But it's confusing to me that people moving towards a common goal, uh, say putting on a, a show or a tour, would treat other people like shit that are that are essentially on your same side. Like you're both you're all putting in effort in your own rights, like the crew, like you said, the tour manager, the bands, everything like the venue staff. I, I just don't know why they wouldn't treat each other better. Ah, who knows? There, there are a thousand different factors or reasons i don't have a clue i don't have a clue but uh it happened as it happened 
and uh, I just try to prevent similar situations when it when it comes to our band, where we can where we have some influence, we make sure everybody is is doing well. And if there's a well, problem yeah. or a, you never know, like on the last tour, the, the recent run we did in North America, we had some problems because uh, the weather. We had one show canceled. We had other shows where we have been way too late at uh, the venue. But instead of um, canceling the support bands, all of the bands, everybody worked together. And uh, even the headliners carried all kinds of, of gear and make it happen last minute that every band at least can play a certain amount uh, amount of music. And this is this is how it works. You, you can party together. You can celebrate a successful event, whatever, together. But if shit hits the fan you also have to stick together and if that works with everybody involved you know and understand okay this is a certain camaraderie and uh, you you put some respect on the table and this is this was one of the nicest experience on the last run despite having like 10 sold out shows or 90 sold out shows i, I don't care about that i'm happy if everything works and uh, you can go home with a smile on your face Moving back to both of your bands here so although obscura and Volcandra are quite different in their styles and lyrical content are there any other ways that the bands are linked? Of course, you are one of those reasons, but I guess what I mean by that is, do you have any little Easter eggs in either of their respective music that fans of both bands may recognize? I doubt it, to be honest. Even the songwriting uh, differs completely. Sometimes you hear, okay, the, the might be the same guitarist involved, or maybe 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 the, the vocals are the most obvious part, but aside that, there are, there are no Easter eggs. For many, many years, I tried to separate both bands as much as possible but these days i have to talk about both bands and in, in almost all interviews uh, i give so that's not possible anymore but on purpose there's no easter eggs if if there are some well <laughs> that happens something i guess i should have confirmed before we started recording here is uh you just mentioned that you have to speak with uh, about both bands during interviews is that something that bothers you would you prefer to have like one interview specific for one band it, it doesn't bother me at all I mean, I'm, I'm happy if uh, if both bands get uh, recognized somehow and also recognized as both individual bands, individual groups. So that's that's not a problem. Just in the beginning, in the first, let's say, 10, 10 15 years, I tried to separate it as much as possible to make sure one of both is not seen just as a project or something. I know you've already touched on wanting to keep both bands kind of apart from each other, but previously you've also discussed about how they, for all intents and purposes, were meant to be opposites of each other. Is that a sentiment that still remains the same? Hmm, hard to say. I think both bands, they, they followed uh, a different path of what they are doing musically and also where we are playing shows and when and how we are playing shows. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind. I think what we started 20 years ago or 21 years ago works. That's the bottom line. It's pretty much it's pretty much how we actually it, it, it's way bigger than we hoped it can be. With Tulkandra, it's such a niche uh, we are covering, and uh, combined with the fact that we don't play that much live or only selected dates, we never expect to to enter the charts in our hometown or get the chance to to play a North American run or like this we expected to have to play i don't know play local shows record of course we would have recorded the albums anyway doesn't matter if we get successful or not but uh, we never expected those sales or this this big amount of attention we we face during the last years of course 
that's something positive. That's something cool. That's something <laughs> we we celebrate every now and then with a drink together in the band. But it's not uh, the way or the the intention we founded the band. We founded the band because of the music. And if we're looking back, like looking over the shoulder back to two thousand and three, we still do exactly what we did when we started the band. We play exactly this kind of music. It does matter if people like it or not. Uh, we love it. We love it, and we would go on. And I really, really hope we can we can stick together for another twenty years and record another five. One thing that I found really unique about Obscura is that you've spoken about the four album cycle and your influences behind that, one of them being Led Zeppelin. That began with Cosmogenesis in 2009, if I'm correct, and will have concluded with Diluvium. My question here is, are you following suit with A Valediction and your subsequent releases for Obscura? <laughs> yes, it's a free album concept this time because we signed okay. a deal for three records. And with uh, Relapse, we had a deal about four records. So somehow I try to connect all of this and uh, we're looking into the second part of this uh, series of three albums of Obscura very soon. How are you going to keep the first album cycle from bleeding into the second? Hmm, that's a good question, because I don't know how to answer that somehow. So the first four records, or actually there was a debut album, but the, the, we call it the, the Relapse Records or the, the Relapse Area. Those four records, they are on their own. And on purpose, after the fourth records after uh, Diluvium, I changed the producer, I changed the artwork. It was not meant to change the entire lineup. That was rather unexpected. But I still kept the entire vibe of Obscura. And now we do something something different. To combine both, what we're doing right now is mixing our very first live album for the band. And this is basically covering the the most the most successful songs of the band. And that covers both areas. So the Nuclear Blast and the Relapse records years. And there's a mixture. And then this is more or less the glue in between both areas. And we still play songs of all albums on our live shows. So okay. visually, yes, there's a difference. Um, with the live records, there's the glue. And of course, if you go to a live show, you you hear songs of all, all areas of the band. We are not skipping anything. I'm just looking at your members here, and this might be an, a weird question, but there have been obviously a fair amount of members that have come and gone from Obscura. Is that something that you um, that you consciously do based on the album that you're writing, or is that something that has just happened naturally over time? That usually happened naturally over time. Uh, the, the last person or the last musician I ejected from the band was in 2015. Mm. So people's people's life simply changed and changed and. That happens. I mean, if you if you get kids, that changes your entire life plan. If you uh, if you're a teenager and have all the time of of your life just focusing into music, you can start a thousand different projects. But as soon as you start to decide, oh, am I going to become a student? Uh, am I going to start working regularly? Hmm. That that are big changes in your life, and that also affects the participation of playing in a band. And on top. This is underground music. This is a certain niche. Yes, we are touring worldwide, but again, we are not we are not getting rich with all this kind of music. And on top, you need a certain a certain level of musicianship to just play this kind of music. It doesn't matter on, on which instrument, but uh, you really have to be able to play your instrument. And combined with traveling around the world, playing between eighty and one hundred twenty shows a year, 
you're not getting rich. This is not for everyone. And I had people that leave uh, or left the band out of so many different reasons. Some were simply not made of, for the road. Some started to change um, their musical taste. Some simply didn't want to to travel that much. I mean, there are different reasons and that happens every now and then. And I respect that. I mean, what, what I'm doing over here is, uh, when you look at my bank account, not the, the most, uh, the most ideal way to spend your life with, but I love it. So I understand it. If people want to do something else, I respect it. When I was uh, in my early 20s, sometimes I didn't understand it. But if you're in a position yourself that you make big changes in your life, then maybe you understand it a little bit better. So on a personal level, I, I cooled down a lot during the last 10 years or something. And I understand it simply better. But com to come back to your question, Lineup changes only causes a lot of headache because first of all, you need people that be uh, able to play the music. But on the other hand, it's 50 person at least. You need people that uh, you really want to hang out with, even in extreme situations. If you're in a, in a submarine on wheels for six weeks in North America with, uh, well, sometimes stressful day-to-day -day schedules, you really need people that, that understand all of this. And well, if not, maybe you're not made for this life. Some people are better studio musicians. Okay, but not for the life uh, situation. And for a band like Obscura, especially for Obscura, you need simply professionals on all levels. And not only musically, but also on a personal level. Fortunately, it doesn't seem like your lineup changes have affected negatively the, the direction and success of Obscura. My idea here is that there are some, there are some bands that are synonymous with one, one or two of their members. For Obscura, and I had the same kind of chat with uh, Greg Burgess from Allegion, and it doesn't seem like it's really bothered you guys in that way. Like, you guys still have relatively consistent sounds, and you guys keep progressing to the next level. Um, have you ever felt that a loss of a member or um, changing lineup has negatively affected you? Yes, of course. Uh, if somebody uh, doesn't accept not being in a band anymore and uh, starting to blame you in public, that that, that affects you and your band, of course, mm. in a negative way, but uh, I can deal with it. I mean, what should I say? <laughs> These days, it doesn't matter if somebody blames you public and uh, people follow this person, the, the, that person that blames you the loudest always, always is in the right position. <laughs> so, yeah, um, well, I can't change that. But so far for Obscura, we always, we always worked with great people. Like great positions. We never had a bad drummer. We never had a bad guitarist. We never had a bad bassist. And fans sometimes like this person more because I don't know they they couldn't play this lick or other other have this attitude. I always want to work with musicians that have their their very own stamp or their their very own sound. I don't need a studio musician who can play anything or everything, mm -hmm. but uh, so less. I want to work with people that uh, have their own sound, and. Then, of course, you, you change the band sound. If you have a rhythm section that is more rooted into prog music uh, instead of a rhythm section that is totally hands-on extreme death metal, of course that changes the entire sound of your band. But for me, this is not a problem. I I rather see the, uh, the similarities to a band like Death. Um, I had the chance to tour with Death to All. I played mm -hmm. shows with Gene Hogland on drums. And I played uh, shows with uh, Jean Reinhardt on drums. And both are entirely different, but 
both played the same songs, but each song sounded entirely different. But both versions have been fantastic, just different. And people, people just want to hear the same sound as on every live, uh, uh, live as it is on every record as it is recorded. And this is stupid. I mean, if you want to hear it like that with exactly the same phrasing, listen to the listen to the fucking studio record. But exactly. in a live setting with different musicians, I think it's more interesting how uh, a different lineup can interpret a certain a certain sound in rock music or in pop music. This is much more common, and especially this techie or progressive death metal uh, niche. Uh, people don't want to have any changes. They really want to have one by one the same the same record uh, transferred live. And this is something I, I don't agree to. I I want to have somebody where, with our own sound. But it's a matter of taste in the end. There's no right or wrong. There's no black or white. It's just uh, a matter of taste if you like it or not. I think you're taking a good approach to it too. Like asking each member to bring in their own personal flair so yeah your music might change over time but that's not limiting anybody creatively and you're working as as a collective rather than just you taking like taking lead and giving everybody direction this is how it's going to be played this is what we're going to do well when it comes to the uh, entire band i'm the person that leads towards a certain direction in both bands but everybody's welcome to to be part of it and in the end in the very end yes we have a certain band sound but every member somehow um, um, how you call it? Uh, forms the the overall the the overall details of each each album. So with Obscura or Tulkandra, you can listen to any album. It always sounds like one of those two bands, but each album sounds a little bit different because we have different members. And uh, again, I don't want to polish everything entirely. I want to keep the the personal flavors of each musician in in the group. And if you think about that. Even if the, the direction of the music is clear and uh, I show in which direction it's going to, each album sounds a little bit different and uh, you, you hear who is playing who. With Obscura, I think especially the drummers, they have a very, very different approach from the first drummer to the second to the third to the fourth. Um, that always changes the sound of a band, the, the entire rhythm section. And I love it. I, I don't want to hear the same band in the same genre for for doing like 10 albums if you listen to acdc i don't can i cannot point out which song is from which album i'm not too much into uh, into this genre but there are aerosmith records that sound entirely different <laughs> it's I, I know this is quite far but uh, i'd rather have it a little bit more more interesting in your musical life on two separate occasions both in 2011 and 2021 you released an album with both bands at the same or within the same year so how do you balance your time between both bands? And did you find those years more stressful than, than years when you're only focusing on one album? I think both both years have been quite coincidences. A Valediction should have been released half a year earlier, but during the pandemic, we had to cancel the first studio, uh, the studio session to record the record in 2020 or 21, 20. Um, so this album actually got delayed and then it was a coincidence that it got released almost the same month as uh, Tulkandra. In 2011, I think it was quite similar. It was not planned out at all. And uh, touring with both bands in both years became a problem when I had a regular job at the, at the beginning. But these days, I mean, I'm, I'm planning everything for both bands. So it's, it's not a big problem. Prior to joining any band, you went to a boarding school for the Musically Gifted. 
how did they find students or how did they select students for the school and how and when did they identify you as someone that should be there? That went um, when I, uh, let me think, I think that was 93, 94, something like that. So in Germany, you have to visit the, the regular music uh, courses. So it's part of the, the uh, school system. So the first, second, third, fourth grade, uh, you all have to play a certain instrument. It can be the flute, uh, it can be whatever. So it's something basic. It's nothing really in depth, but uh, you learn to sing, you learn a couple of basics. Like regular uh, music, um, music lessons you have at elementary school. And uh, there it seems like I was some kind of gifted in a certain way and it went through the teachers. So when I changed the school, I think in the, at the third grade, uh, because we moved, my parents and me, we moved uh, to another city. Um, they somehow recommended this. And since it was a, was a boarding school, uh, we had to think about if it's the right thing or not, yes or no. And uh, somehow I had to get, um, how do you call it? Numerous clauses. So basically you had to make some tests before you were able to join the school. So I got a recommendation from my regular school, from the elementary school, uh, to go there. We went there. We made um, all of those tests so you basically uh, they had to figure if your ears are working probably uh, you, I don't remember everything but there have been some tests I had to sing I had to play some melodies uh, I have to remember some melodies and repeat them stuff like that some very very basic stuff uh, to figure if you are gifted in some way and then this they decided I'm I'm approved and then I even got a, a scholarship from I think the state of Bavaria so the the part of Germany where we live so that was kind of kind of interesting at that point. It wasn't planned at all. It somehow happened. So with this being a boarding school, is that did you have to stay at the school while um, while you attended it, or is, or could you go home at night? Uh, the school was around hundred kilometers from the place where we lived at the time, and every second weekend, two weekends during uh, per month, I have been home. So oh, that must have been a really interesting experience. A Catholic uh, religious school, so we had to learn uh, all kinds of uh, very, very deep religious uh, yeah, lyrics. We had to. <laughs> it was quite fun. Uh, I think at the fourth grade, uh, we had to learn I think four or five pages of Latin language, Latin sung um, uh, choir parts because ugh, it, it was ridiculous, but no one spoke Latin. <laughs> it's like, uh, I ask you as a as a 10 year old kid, you have to learn four pages out of Japanese and sing it. <laughs> it was fucking ridiculous. But um, I mean, not everything was bad. The pro side was the fact that we, um, we learned a lot to train our ears and uh, we had to learn not only to sing, solo and in a choir but we also learned one instrument like we had one main instrument at uh, end of the fifth grade or sixth grade i don't remember exactly uh we were supposed to learn a second instrument so most of us choose the piano a few choose the, the violin and i prefer the piano i don't remember why but i simply choose that instrument so i, I think there was no real reason for it but i love the instrument and uh well, I rehearsed a lot. Usually they, they allowed us or 
they didn't allow us. So there was a demand of at least rehearsing half an hour every day on your instruments. But uh, <laughs> I talked to them and uh, I was allowed to, to uh, rehearse a little bit more. So uh, they had different chambers. In each chamber, there was uh, one of one of the pianos. And I think they had 30 or 40 of those chambers. It was, it was kind of a big school. So every hour they changed the students in, in those chambers. And um, I talked to them and I could use it a little bit more often than only those uh, 30, 30 minutes per day. So that was kind of cool. And I made uh, big steps in playing Bach and uh, Mozart, Beethoven, all, all the classics. And I enjoyed it very much. But I tended to play a little bit too fast. And my, my teacher at the time, he showed me what is a tactile. Are you familiar with that? You, you know what I is a tactile? A tactile is basically an analog click track. Like a pick, puck, pick, puck. Okay, like a, I think, I think what I'm thinking of is like a metronome almost. Yeah, it is a metronome. They, they call it tactile uh, okay. in, in Germany. But it, it was a metronome, but the analog one. It's not like a digital pick, puck, puck piece like you have in Cubase or Pro Tools, it was full-blown old analog. So if I think about it now, um, I think that helped a lot to to play along for click tracks in the studios later. So, and aside as uh, training the ear, I think what, what we learned as, as a kid there affected us as a teenager even more. So back then, not everything was cool, like uh, tests, especially hearing tests. This was something I um, I could do the best. I didn't like music theory too much, to be honest, but uh, everything that has to do with hearing. Um, for example, one of the tests, I think every every week or every second week, the, the main music teacher played a certain melody on the, on the piano, sometimes uh, uh, polyphone, so it's not only one note, but uh, more of them, and we had to write it down out of, out of our ears. And this is something that... Uh, that helped so much. That helped so much. We hated it back then, every now and then. But uh, it helped so much to understand the, the different jumps between between the notes and training your ear the hard way. Well, many stories, ancient history. You said that it's mandatory for children between grades one and four to take music lessons of some sort, right? It's uh, basically one of the, the, the subjects you have in school. When I was in elementary school, which is uh, at least in Canada, grade one through six, that was like an option. It wasn't something that you had to go through. I'm not sure how it is now, but that's a really cool way of implementing like creativity and music into students and having them at least show some of, showcase some of their talents, getting to them early. Well, it always depends how each school is treating and uh, is, is treating this the subject, and if there's a, a teacher available. So there's a big shortage of teachers for, for art and music in Germany. And depending on if you have the stuff available, they, they offer it, they, they have to. But if not, sometimes just, I don't know, students do those courses. So not everything's perfect, but if the, the circumstances are good, of course, all the children benefit from it on the long term. Obviously, there's some huge differences between the types of schools. So being int introduced to instruments or singing, for example, is beneficial but it seemed like the boarding school obviously took a more intensive approach with more practice areas you said you're learning music theory and stuff like that apart from some of that stuff how did the com the instruction compare between the regular school and the musical school the the regular school is over at noon and just one or two days you depending on the grade you are in uh you have some subjects in the afternoon in this boarding school 
we finished if i'm correct um we finished at four o'clock in the afternoon so this was entirely focused on music it was uh, a regular school but on top you had all of those subjects like singing uh the music theory you had uh learning your uh, choose an instrument and all that so it was a it was really different it's you can compare it to um those sports schools for soccer or football or something where you somehow have to handle all the, the regular subjects like math and uh, english and languages but on top uh, your main focus is on sports and this is basically the same we had uh just focused on on music on old 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 music okay that makes sense I read that your focus in the beginning was songwriting. What goes into learning that? What do you mean exactly? I don't exactly know. So I was reading one of your previous interviews and it was something that was brief, uh, briefly touched on. If I remember correctly, I don't have the source uh, written down right now. I was, thinking, uh, I was wondering if it's like solely songwriting musically or did they also focus on like things like sentence structure or otherwise matching lyrics with the song itself? Uh, okay. I think that um, that was more related to um, what, what I like to do within the bands. So. Um, I'm not focusing on becoming the, the best lead guitarist in the world because I'm not interested too much in it. I, I rather write good songs and uh, I, I write songs not to, to show off. I write songs that have a certain structure. Um, I'm always focused on a big chorus and a clear structure. So whenever I, I come up with a song, the, the whole structure is, or I hope, <laughs> uh, memorable to a certain to a certain degree. This is what I always put my, my focus on. I don't have to show off. I rather write music for, for the sake of it, to have a good song. And during the last, I don't know, maybe around 10 years or something, I try to reduce something. So I try to understand the, the spectrum of frequencies within writing songs. Uh, long story short, if there is a guitar solo, I don't need a rhythm guitar solo. I don't need, a, I don't know, uh, punctuated uh, drum patterns below it. I, I rather write songs to showcase each instrument the best way possible. Does it, does it tell a story within a whole song? If there's a bass solo, everybody else should just lay back a little bit. And uh, if I think about writing a piece with a big choir section, all the all the other instruments don't have to play solos at the same time. Just to try to explain it in a in a in a short way. So. I'd rather do that instead of um, rehearsing solos for four hours a day. This is not my intention. Every now and then it changes a little bit, of course, of your personal taste and uh, whatever you listen to at the moment. And writing songs is still my, my main focus. I'd rather do that instead of um, being a content creator or trying to show off because of I can do, I don't know, sweep picking on 300 BPM or something. Mm. What was the single most important lesson that you learned in your early years? The, the most important, I would say, training my ear, looking back. This is something I benefit until today. Well, it's like you said, you didn't like it in the beginning, but it's something that benefited you over years for sure. Yes, that's absolutely right. It doesn't matter which instrument I have in my hands. If I, if I hear that a tom is uh, out of tune at the drum set, uh, we fix it. <laughs> so that's universal. It's universal and timeless if you understand uh, or have a certain, uh, not the, the perfect pitch, but if you just hear, okay, hey guys, there's something wrong here. There might be a wrong note or um, maybe this, I don't know, piece is a little bit out of tune or something, then uh, that helps a lot. 
simply to understand the big picture. You've mentioned previously that Death's release, Human, was essentially the first album that propelled you into extreme metal. Before that, who were some of the heavier bands that you listened to? Hmm. Death Human was definitely one of the first albums that uh, has been passed around in uh, of all of my friends. And back then there was no no internet of that extreme as, as right now. So we just passed around all kinds of different different music. Of course, dissection, not only death. Uh, I think Slayer, Megadeth and Metallica <laughs> albums have been available in the local library on CD, which was kind of cool. <laughs> I didn't like yeah, all of the records. Cool. I didn't like all of the records, but most of them. And I also listened to grindcore and punk and whatever. I mean, if you're 13, 14, 15, the more extreme, the better. And everything you get in your hands can't be hard enough. <laughs> so at the time, I, I just loved everything. But what really clicked was uh, Human. And uh, a little bit later, I figured Cynic, Focus, the album that uh, I think our bassist at the time he passed it to me. I'm, I'm not entirely sure anymore, but... Those records somehow they clicked because they they vibed, they grooved, they had uh, really really songs like really cool songs you could somehow understand and sing along to a certain degree, and uh, the performances have been simply awesome. And I never heard something like that before. I love it, and still up to this day, I I love both records. I think it's cool that your libraries had those albums. Like I remember, I remember going to my public library when I was really young and looking for some of the music that I enjoyed. But we had an absolute shit selection, and it was basically pop and country. <laughs> well, in this library, of course, they also had pop and uh, German schlager and all kinds of abominations of music. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, I mean, it's a library. They have all kinds of different stuff, and uh, they've been open-minded enough to not only have jazz and classic music uh, in the library, but also really extreme music. So hands down, this is cool. It's really cool, actually. I like that. And how about now, who are currently some of your favorite bands or bands that you have on heavy rotation? Uh, it changes every now and then. Early, early the year, I was listening to a lot of uh, Mastodon from Atlanta, fantastic band. And uh, a Swedish band called Nestor. That sounds like Bon Jovi in his prime. Um, what else? There, there was a black metal band from southern Germany, actually quite old, but I just uh, stumbled across them, I think, one or two years ago, called uh, Throne. Very extreme, very cool. What else? Um, I think Allegion is a very cool band I listen to uh, every now and then. Same with Revocation, Dave Davidson, fantastic guitarist. And, well, I'm just listening to new music every now and then. So I click around, I get a lot of um, bands from friends or the guys uh, I'm playing with. When we, are, for example, when we have been on tour recently in North America, everybody took over the, the stereo in the bus every now and then and played songs. And uh, we shared music like in the back, back in the good old times, but not on CD, the local CD player. But we, of course, we had Spotify, <laughs> Apple iTunes, and uh, Bluetooth speakers. But still, it's uh, the same vibe. You. I, th I think you still discover the, the best bands uh, through recommendations of friends. I definitely agree with that as well. I find that I found a lot of really good bands through just this podcast alone. Yeah, it's an endless pile of fantastic bands coming up every now and then. And these days, even the, the so-called older bands uh, release great albums as well. I think these days, uh, when it comes just to the amount of quality music, these are the best days since, well... 
existence uh, metal existed. When it comes to the creative part, it's so easy to record and uh, write music and put out your your own ideas. It, it opens up a pile of so many so many new artists and bands that uh, would have would have not been discovered in the eighties. Like everybody everybody cheers up the eighties or at the seventies. Yes, that have been cool times with cool bands. But uh, think about all the the arty artier, uh, more extreme or more creative bands that uh, didn't make it through any A and R of the big labels. So there are always pros and cons. These days, there are so many bands that you cannot you cannot keep up with all releases. So you somehow have to find your own voice and make yourself interesting for a certain audience. So there's always a there's always something good or something bad. But again, when it comes to cre uh, creative freedom, I think we are living in the best times ever. It's so easy and cheap to, to de deliver or uh, put out your own music and ideas. It doesn't matter how weird, bizarre and extreme it is. You, you can put it out with a little bit exactly. of effort. That's fantastic. And like you said, the only downside to that really is it's, it's impossible to keep up with everything. So you kind of have to pick and choose where possible. Yeah. So then we are back uh, the same way as in the 80s, the best recommendations your friends usually have. <laughs> so the last thing I want to touch on, Stefan, before we get going here is uh, just before the recording, you mentioned that you had just finished up in the studio today recording with Obscura. So I'm wondering what can fans expect from Obscura coming up? And do you have a tentative timeline for the next release? We are working on a live record right now. That's what I uh, just mix in uh, in Sweden with Fredrik Nordstrom at uh, Fredman Studios. And so we are also working on a new album, but I do not have a real time frame over here. We first want to write music and see uh, how that goes. And afterwards, we are going to book a studio, not vice versa. Otherwise, we are somehow under pressure to come up with music just because of a studio date. So first, we are writing music and then we see how that goes. On the live end, we have a couple of more tours in uh, Central and South America. And we're also working on going back to Asia. So uh, there's absolutely more to come. Well, I'm looking forward to both releases. Obviously, Hail the Abyss is coming out in just over two weeks here. For anyone looking for your music that doesn't know how to find it already, where's the best place to find Thulcandra's music? Thulcandra's music you find actually on all outlets. But I would recommend um, just hopping on napalmrecords.com because they have uh, all the records available. And uh, I think you can stream all albums everywhere these days. Just, just open your ears and uh, you get transferred to the mid-90s, <laughs> <laughs> listening to Thulcandra. And then I'm assuming the exact same is, or sorry, it's pretty much the exact same for Obscura, except for you're with Nuclear Blast with them. Exactly, or Relapse. The, the albums are available everywhere, thanks to both labels cooperating. This is also something uh, uh, unique. So we're all on good terms with uh, also our old labels, and uh, that's the reason why where things happen, like this live records. So this is really something something cool. So I'm grateful and thankful for Relapse as well as Nuclear Blast for Obscura and also Napalm Records putting so much effort into Dukandra lately. So hard work and, well, pretty people like you want to be treated uh, pays off on the long term. 100%. With that, Stefan, I want to thank you so much for joining me again today. I do appreciate your time, especially with how busy you are almost constantly. And I had a blast. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, it turned out to be a very long podcast, but I hope people enjoyed it. And uh, if they are still listening too, thank you. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time on Gyro Nation Metal. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. The podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 
If you would like to support this podcast, please consider checking out my Patreon. Thank you.